I'm Taryn Ward. And I'm Stephen Jones. And this is Breaking the Feed, social media beyond the headlines. We're taking a closer look at the core issues around social media, including the existing social media landscape, to better understand the role of social media in our everyday lives and in society. By thinking about where social media started and why, and thinking about how it's changed and why, we're better placed to consider which of these changes have been for the better and for who. We hope to appreciate the current landscape and anticipate the decisions regulators, big social and consumers are likely to make moving forward more fully. But we'll save any future speculation for another episode. Last time we looked at where it all started, with online social networking before smartphones. Today we'll look at how the widespread use of smartphones, beginning with the release of Apple's iPhone in 2007, changed social media, and arguably, how social media fueled the widespread use of smartphones. We'll follow these changes up to 2016, so we'll focus on social media that was both post-smartphone and pre-TikTok. We'll begin again with a question. How did the widespread use of social media on smartphones change our lives? With two supplementary questions in mind, did that change serve the original purpose of better connecting us? And were we better or worse off overall? In this case, we'll argue that the answer to all three questions is that it depends. Hopefully not in an annoying lawyer way. A long way uh, from the days of computer serve and the dial-up days of America Online, the internet had already changed. By 2008, we were using cable or ASDL connections to connect to the internet. Speeds have become significantly quicker, though very much slower than they are today. And almost everybody was using a computer at work and had one at home, and children were using them regularly in the classroom. And, you know, at this point, I had had a BlackBerry for four years, and BlackBerry was the absolute pinnacle of connected device that you could carry in your pocket or more commonly on a holster on your belt if you were a man. And, you know, I'm not going to lie, I loved my BlackBerry. I got it in 2004, and I was quickly Pavlovian up. I would pick that thing up every time it vibrated, and I probably had it for a couple of months before I started getting that phantom notification syndrome where you think you're getting a vibration in the thing, and you pick it up, and actually you're not, right? And that that's something which everybody gets now with their, uh, with their cell phones. Uh, and, you know, I'll be honest, it was the best thing at doing what it was supposed to do, which was uh, make calls and send email. It was brilliant. And I still regret the loss of the physical keyboard. I think I I will concede that Steve Jobs was right. The iPhone is a brilliant interface and it's wonderful, but I could type so fast on that BlackBerry and I needed to because I was traveling all the time. I didn't have time to take my laptop out and answer emails. I could blind type with two thumbs faster than most people can touch type with all 10 fingers. And BlackBerry, I think when they saw the iPhone came out, famously, one of the um, the founders of BlackBerry felt that it was completely unnecessary to try and compete with it. Not, in retrospect, the best business decision. But the first iPhone wasn't that good, as we talked about last time. You didn't have an app store. It wasn't really able to do very much more than, you know, the, the few apps that were on it. And it was extremely expensive. But then in 2008, it connected to 3G. And the App Store started, and that opened the doors to to social media. Uh, but let's remember, the camera on it was pretty bad at the time. I think it was 2 megapixels when it launched, uh, and the screen was 640 points wide, which um, which will come relevant when we talk about social media uh, a bit later. But that's it was pretty small, and it was relatively slow compared to the, today's devices. 
Right. So as we talked about last time, several of the existing major social media networks were available before 2008, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. But there were major opportunities for growth with smartphones, which essentially put computers into our pockets. Yeah. And, and having that with us all the time meant that you know we had compute, significant computing power in our pockets. It was accessible to a larger number of people who weren't going to buy lap, laptops or uh, desktops. It definitely increased the amount of time we could be online, and that meant there was an increased demand for content, and of course, that so that demand was met through increased supply. Pretty quickly, app developers like Instagram and, and Snapchat cottoned on to the fact that there was a camera on the back of this phone, and at the time, it was only on the back of the phone, and that they could therefore start to take advantage of that and, and bring in uh, image-based content, uh, which previously had not really been practical. Right. So we started to see a lot more use of these platforms. And it leaves us with a question about whether the success of these platforms was the result of the existing culture or whether these platforms changed the culture so that they could survive. Ultimately, I think it was probably a bit of both. But it's undeniable that documenting our lives in this way, rather than in private journals or letters, emails, private messaging, or even text-based posts or cryptic quotes or song lyrics gave way to a movement to document the lives of everyday people by image in a completely new way. Yeah, I mean, and that comes with some advantages and, and benefits, right? I mean, the world was getting busier. We were more spread out with physical distance. I mean, I, I for example, my wife and I and the kids were thousands of kilometers away from our remaining family in the UK. Prior to this, we were calling once a week on scheduled calls on a Sunday. Um, that was how that was done. I had a, a friend uh, who worked with me at the university who'd um, just prior to this been in New Zealand, and you had to sort of organize those calls. You couldn't even just call because it was such a you know big time difference and, and so on that it, it, you know, it really had to be thought out. And this new technology in our pockets meant that we weren't really worried about um, any, any of this. And of course, Facebook had launched. I joined in 2008, which was around about the, the time the smartphone came out, although it wasn't available on the smartphone to begin with, of course. You could access it through the, through the browser, and that made it easy to, to connect with friends and colleagues across the world um, and even a country the size of Canada, which you know I had colleagues from coast to coast. That's uh, six time zones. That's uh, really convenient to just have this low-touch method on hand. Yeah, so speaking of how, how you were using Facebook at the time, because you also use classmates.com, it occurs to me that in some ways, Facebook was the new classmates.com. You could reconnect with old classmates and colleagues, share memories, catch up, meet up, and, and this became sort of a nostalgia-fueled experience. That wasn't exactly how, how I was using it because I was still sort of in the throes of meeting new people yeah. and connecting and, and, and all of that. But for you, when you think about this, do you see Facebook as sort of the new classmates.com during this period? Yeah, I think it was. I mean, it, it, absolutely. And you could, you're absolutely right. I think at, at this point in time, people who were sort of my age, a little bit older than you out of university for a while, had a much smaller friend group on Facebook. We made with friends with people we already knew, either through work or through um, family connections or whatever. Um, whereas it started to become the thing that you did, right? It was as if you met somebody at a party, or, you know, you would connect on Facebook. And so 
I talk quite often about the difference between having contacts and connections. And I think that that, that dichotomy started to occur at this point. If you were like me, you had um, connections with people through Facebook. And if you were younger, you had contacts. And you know nobody realistically has 498 friends that they can maintain reasonable relations with and be genuinely interested in their lives. I challenge anyone to argue with me. But that's what that's the sort of thing which happened quite quickly, right? Yes, absolutely. And I think it was it was a very different experience, but Facebook during this period of time really managed to serve the interests of both groups. Um, which however I may feel about Facebook right now really was remarkable. Yeah, I mean I loved Facebook at this point and it was clunky. It wasn't like it was slick. Let's be honest, it was not. Um using it on the smartphone was also not a slick experience at this point. What I think they did, which was really was really good, and I, uh, we've talked about this before when we were prepping this, was the ability to introduce um, sort of small apps like Farmville. I remember playing Farmville collaboratively with friends and family across the world, you know, and it got people to keep going back, right? Because you had to harvest your strawberries every two hours or something, right? And uh, so, you know, if you had to go back into Facebook, uh, you might not want to catch up with people, but you might want to go in and get the farm open and, and harvest your strawberries or send somebody something. And and that that sort of, I think, really helped them in ways that they that they couldn't possibly have anticipated. And I don't know what the commercial deal was between the, the two companies, but it, it wasn't something that I could really see Facebook making money off, but it actually, I think, really helped them. Um, and Farmville was just probably the most popular of the games, at least in my family, but there were lots of other things you could do online um but sharing photos actually wasn't one of those in the beginning right because it, it wasn't it wasn't very effective at that it was we posted some photos i think eventually but not it wasn't really what it became and possibly has drifted away from now what, what do you think i think that's right i think a point you made earlier it was we were still posting photos but it was a long process so normally we would take the photos on a digital camera and then those photos would have to be uploaded to a computer and then from the computer added to Facebook. So it wasn't, we weren't documenting every single thing that we did. It was a much lighter touch sort of a thing. Yeah, that's right. Because it was just more work, right? And nobody, nobody wanted social media to be work. We already did enough work. The technology availability of the iPhone and the camera in the back definitely had a big impact in social media in that way. And as a positive feedback loop, the desire for people to share those photos meant that the cameras got better, right? Yeah, absolutely. So I think if Facebook was the new classmates.com, Twitter was sort of the new bulletin board system or chat room. And Yelp and Foursquare also emerged as these great resources for deciding how to live our lives and where the cool kids spent time. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I didn't really use Foursquare. I'm not sure why. Maybe it wasn't so popular in Canada, or at least wasn't popular, you know, amongst the people that I was connected to. Um, I did use Twitter a bit, but I, I was mostly a locker rather than a poster, which is still true, to be honest. But that's, I think, it's true for most people. I read somewhere that most people post on Twitter once a month, and it actually all the content is driven by a relatively small number of users, which posts who post all the time, which I guess explains why some voices dominate. Did you use Twitter much? Were you a tweeter? I didn't use Twitter a lot. I think like you, I lurked, but it was very exciting, this idea at least, that we could connect with experts and have direct conversations about things that matter. And if we could come up with something clever enough or relevant enough, they would engage with us and maybe even like a tweet or comment or follow us back, which was, was amazing. I used both Yelp and Foursquare, but never made it to celebrity status. So I would sort of 
post things once in a while and check in, but I found it a little bit weird. I think I was I was in that sort of in between where I was young enough that what I wanted to try new things, but old enough that I wasn't I wasn't quite sure I liked all of this connecting. It was a very strange sort of change. You know, I'm I'm still from the generation where we call their parents maybe once a week. And now all of a sudden I had friends who were posting and their parents could follow their entire week across various platforms. And their their old friends could follow exactly where they were eating and who they were eating with and what they were doing. And it just felt like a lot of pressure and a lot of time online. And I think this was really the first time I had experiences with people in real life where I felt they're not really experiencing this with me. We're having this great lunch or this beautiful brunch. Um, I miss those those all day brunches, by the way. But they weren't fully there because they were so busy documenting the experience online that they weren't fully in the moment. And I think that really sets us up for what happened with Instagram soon after. Yeah, I think that's a really that's a really interesting point. I, I, my my kids were probably the right age, and to be honest, like I enjoyed it too. That when Easy A came out with Emma Stone, where she plays this student who becomes a scarlet woman in the high school. There's a one scene in there, and this was really uh, an indicator that Twitter had hit the the mainstream and in the big time because the teacher complains about the you know inane tweets that the students are posting that they they got a a coffee and a donut before they came to school, and all, every minute of their day was being documented, and there was absolutely no content in it whatsoever. And you're like, yeah, that is actually what exactly what that is exactly what's happening, and it is right to send it up. But at the same time. You had, you know, Twitter that was used by journalists around the world to to tell people what was going on in otherwise repressive regimes. It was used to organize, you know, the Arab Spring, although we could really delve into, you know, the, the costs and benefits of that. So there were there were good things that were happening happening to it as well. But this this need to um, document everything and to get approval from everybody about everything that you were doing. And, you know, it wasn't enough to eat a beautiful meal. That beautiful meal didn't exist if it wasn't appropriately documented in a photograph and talked about online. The review was written of the, you know, the place where you got it. That was a new phenomenon. And I think certainly for me was a bit bizarre. Although I must admit that I, for a while I was committed to TripAdvisor. And would review and read reviews religiously because I was traveling around um, and didn't know where to go. Yeah, fair enough. I think there started to be a general sense that you could share a picture of yourself and receive a fuller picture of someone else based on the choices they were making. And some of this was Foursquare and some of it was even Yelp. But is this somebody I can relate to or not based on arguably superficial? measurements. And I think that really does set the scene for Instagram. And I think we could spend easily hours talking just about Instagram and and how that changed how we engage with each other and society and how we live our lives. But I think before we dive too far into that, do you remember life before selfies? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, most all of my childhood and a large part of my young adult uh, hood was time before selfie. Like when when we had our last child, we were living in Salisbury. My mother lived in Plymouth, so she wasn't going to see her as much as she's seen the other kids. And so she bought us a Polaroid camera so that we could take instant camera, instant photos, and share them. And because that was that was actually the most convenient way to do it, take a quick snap when something interesting was happening. Right. 
And, you know, we used to care about photos. I remember film cameras. That's how old I am. And if you were going to go on holiday, you might have one or two rolls of film. That, so that was, what, 72 pictures at the most that you would take on a holiday. And that would have to have been a good holiday because it cost money for the film and it cost money to have them developed. And, and you know, you wanted each photo to be really good. You didn't take pictures of yourself in these destinations. You took pictures of this destination or the people that you were with. It was an entirely new phenomenon, and I'm still not that comfortable with, you know, images of myself. Partly, I suppose, because I really don't know how to make myself look as awesome as people who grew up with the technology and the front-facing camera um, do. Yeah, we've talked about this before. I blame some of it on not having long enough arms to really position the camera in, in the most flattering way. But I think some of it was generational and timing. I think people who are just a little bit younger than me really came up with this expectation around selfies and this whole photo where it didn't happen. Is this Graham worthy? Do it for the gram sort of sort of way of living. And I I certainly remember life before selfies. I think half of my life was existed before selfies, at least selfies online were were a thing. But it's hard for me to remember what life was really like before selfies because it's just become such a part of how we experience the world and how we check in with each other and how we show someone how we're living our lives. It, it is really hard to sort of try to claw my mind back to what it was like before that was, was really a thing. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is a, I mean, a selfie again is like to Google. It has become the thing that it's called. You're taking a front facing photo, you know, camera photo, right? I mean, that's what you're doing, but Everybody knows what a, a, a selfie is. And I think yesterday I was watching a, a TV show and they, they want, it was um, uh, Ted Lasso. And he's on the plane going to England to take on this football coaching job. And a kid on the phone, quite an irritating guy, wants to take an ussy because it's both of them. It's not just, you know, him. And ussy is never going to catch on. But it was quite funny in the context of the TV show. You know, that it sort of like pokes fun at the ludicrous nature of this need to document absolutely uh absolutely everything and he of course goes on to tell ted that he's a complete nutcase for taking on this job and they're going to absolutely murder him and does it very cheerfully and was very happy to get the photo of them together before he's destroyed by the british press yeah I, it is it is a cultural phenomenon it is the culture now and my kids certainly my, my youngest kid definitely grew up with selfie culture and, and documenting literally anything and and um since she's away from home in the Central America right now, and she's posting things on Instagram, and I'm following those stories religiously. It is it's actually very nice, um, as you said. You can see what's going on and and where she is. But I'm not sure that life wasn't better before selfies. Let's put it that way. Yes, I, well, I think that's a that's a, a good question. Although I don't remember where I was or what I was doing when I took my first selfie or saw my first selfie, I think it really was a huge switch because we moved away from text only or text based posts and engagements with an occasional photo, it suddenly was all photos. And I think we can fairly ask whether Instagram met that initial goal of connecting people. Did it let us show more of who we are and learn more about others or not? And I think that really is up for debate. Yeah, uh, I think I think it's really, that's a really good point, right? I mean, I think we got to see other people's lives. I would argue that we weren't really connected to them. And there's pretty good evidence that it's not commenting on other people's photos, which causes a decline in young women's mental health. It's not even what other people say to them. It's their view of what they posted, their attractiveness in these photos, which is 
uh, a problem. So I think not only are you not connecting genuinely with other people, but you're not really having a healthy connection with yourself if your view of you is really what you see on, on Instagram. And, you know, a lot of what you see on Instagram isn't real to the point that this has become a little bit of a trend over the last couple of years, right? Posting the, this is what I look like when I'm just standing like a human. And this is what I look like when I take a picture for Instagram. And those two things are not the same. And this is what I look like with the Instagram filter. I look perfect. And I actually don't look anything like that in real life. And some of those comparisons are absolutely striking. So, you know, you used to be able to say that the camera didn't lie, but now that's all it does. And I think to take that even a little bit further, if we can agree that it's not connecting people better, not making us more connected, what is the draw? And I think it has to be something like reality television. We know that we're not seeing somebody's real life on Instagram, but there is the sense that, especially in combination with other apps, you can have a glimpse of who someone really is, a little bit of an idea of what their everyday life is, at least insofar as what they want to present as their everyday life to the rest of the world. Yeah. I think that's that's right. I think it was aspirational, and maybe this was part of the time. I mean, there was a whole set of things which came together, right? So 2008 was the financial crisis. People's lives were, you know, suddenly not as awesome as they would have been. You know, I was traveling to Florida for work quite often, and there were so many houses that people just walked away from because they were worth so much less than they'd bought them. You know, this was beautiful houses and beautiful locations, but the market had just been destroyed, and along with it, people's lives. And the, the ripples of that went out. You know, retirements were postponed because pension plans had lost a load of money and and um, disappeared in some cases. And so that real life was suddenly too gritty. And like that aspiration was suddenly very, very attractive. And that coincided with the uh, appearance of the App Store on the iPhone. And it was, let's be honest, this was really driven by the, the iPhone. It took a while for the competitors to catch up. And the availability of a camera so that you had this poor quality image capturing device on the on the back of the phone, it that powered, and then of the availability of Instagram, and you know it's no shock that Instagram had exactly the same sort of horizontal resolution as the iPhone screen that existed when it was launched. They just turned it into the square format, and and iPhone very happy that Apple, you know, launched the phone app, which would actually very conveniently take square photos to drive your Instagram page, right? So it was this positive feedback loop. They helped one another. And you were, I think, absolutely right. You were seeing other people's lives as they wanted them to be and, and a glimpse of the life that you wished you were going to get. But the times were very difficult. Yeah. And we all became fairly good at reading into these posts and sort of guessing at what was real and what wasn't, even if we weren't consciously doing this. My, my sort of guilty example of this is Bookshelves by Color. So when somebody posts a photo of their bookshelf organized by color, it makes the hair stand up. I can't stand it. I know immediately we're not going to be friends. We have nothing in common. And that's it. I know everything I need to know about this person, which is horribly unfair and, and terrible. And I'm really not as shallow as that makes me sound. But it's just one of these things that, you know, if you've taken the time to reorganize your bookshelves to look this way and to post a photo of it on Instagram, my conclusion is we're just not going to have that much in common. Um, do you have anything like that or anything you're willing to confess? 
No, um, I, 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 I guess I don't really, although I do agree with you. Like, I like to be friends with people who read books. And how are you going to find the book that you want to read if it's organized by color? I'm not suggesting that you need a Dewey system, although I might need one. But, you know, at least organize them by book series or genre. And they, the Harry Potter books, for example, are all different colors. How are you going to organize them on a shelf that's supposed to be all the same color? Do you print new colors and put... I mean, it makes no sense. Yeah, I... I I don't, I try, I try not to make a conscious effort not to judge people because I am, you know, I firmly believe that it's all fake, you know, apart from my pictures, because I'm not skillful or thoughtful enough to fake much of them. They're, they're my life really is that boring. But yeah, I, I, I sort of have some sympathy with you there. I think that that is a bit silly, but that it is this sort of, it's perhaps driven a form over function not just in our bookshelves, but for our lives. It, the li our life can't just function anymore. It can't just be good. It has to look good. It has to smell good. It has to taste good. And it has to be most importantly appreciated by other people. Because if you don't get those likes, then your life is somehow a little bit less awesome. And that, I think, is something we're definitely going to talk about in uh, episodes or on mental health. But it's something that, that is a problem for everyone. Yeah, I think as part of that, Connecting in a more real way is scary enough with people we know in communities where there are generally accepted and enforced norms online, and this was true in different ways early on than it is now, we still didn't really understand how this worked, and there were virtually no safeguards. And abuse and harassment, to be clear, came early and often, even in those early days of, of Instagram. And it's still, it's still a feature today, not a flaw. It is it is a feature of how of how these things work. And so I think it was just too scary. And although the color coordinated bookshelves, you know, really do bother me and irk me, I also know that that's pure snobbery. And people may have very good reasons for posting photos of their organized bookshelves. And maybe it just makes their brain happy to do it. But we're still probably never going to be friends. And so I think there there is this weird disconnect now even though I know that I do it and I don't like that I do it and I know I don't have a good reason for doing it, it's still when I scroll through Instagram, I sort of draw these conclusions about people. And I think I think we probably all do it. And I don't know that we're better for it. No, I don't I don't think we are. You know, and, and the scale of the problem is immense. Three billion photographs are uploaded to Instagram every day. That's three billion images which are probably somehow faked. So that's a lot of misrepresentation of the real world. And, and you know, how if this is how people, if Instagram is how people are seeing the real world, and obviously it is, um, they're not seeing the real world. They're, they're seeing something fake. And, and how can you be happy with your life when that's what you're looking at all the time? And, and I think this, whilst you are connected to all of these uh, people and all of these images, you don't have a real connection with them. And that's why perhaps... The data says that people are lonelier than ever, despite all of these ways to interact with uh, other humans. We are lonely. And, it, and interestingly enough, that the latest data says that it's not old people that are the loneliest. It's, it's young people who are lonelier than everybody else. And that makes no sense to me, because looking back on when I was you know, in that age group, we were out having fun with our friends all the time. And I guess the thing is that now you're not. Um, you're living through the online experience. Yeah. Smartphone technology and more stable internet connections meant not only that people could access social media more reliably and frequently, but also that expectations around how often we were online and available also drastically changed, which didn't help any of this. 
This gained momentum until it reached a point where something had to give. And whilst some expected the pendulum to swing the other way, less time online, less sharing, the groundwork was actually set for TikTok to take things to the next level. Next time we'll look at how TikTok has changed the way we social media, even if we don't use social media, and the broader impact it's had. In the meantime, we'll post a transcript of this episode with references on our website. You can find this and more information about us at thebrightapp.com. If you want to hear more about how different types of social media platforms evolved over this period, check out our Byte episodes on dating, messaging, and voice and video socials. Until next time, I'm Stephen Jones. And I'm Taryn Ward. Thank you for joining us for Breaking the Feed, social media beyond the headlines. Music